Hi, this is Robert Furrow and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rather than trying to Scripture mine to figure out something that's going to back up what we already believe. Now, it's a little bit difficult when you believe something to really begin to think that's the way it really should be. But we're going to take time uh, to take questions and to look at what the scriptures have to say and to um, answer those questions to the best um, the best way we can. All right, so it's good to see you guys. Our first question today comes from a question that was asked at the end of our Q&A last week. And the question was, are all sins the same? Now, I think that there is a reason that people ask this because we're all sinners. And some people sin worse than others, and all are under the judgment from their sin. And in fact, there is a passage that I want to show you, which I think kind of lends uh, to this thinking that all sins are the same. And as I'm going to show you in a minute, in a sense, they are. So first of all, it says, and whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. That's James 2.10. So that's telling us that everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. And that if you, if you violate just one of the commandments, then you've sinned and you fell short of God's glory. Um, we all, uh, Isaiah 53 put it this way, all of us like sheep have gone away. Each one has turned unto his own way. That's the idea. But there are, there are Mother Teresa's and there are Hitler's, Right? One's worse than the other. So you've got these different levels. And I think it is important to understand that there is different levels of sin or there are sins that are worse than others. All sin will condemn you. And that's, that's where I think that we fall into this quest, start to question about it. But listen to what Jesus said in John 9, 41. This is a really interesting passage. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, he's, he's healed the blind man um, and he made a reference. The, the Pharisees were watching. They had excommunicated the blind man and the Pharisees were kind of watching. So Jesus made a statement about him. And then they said, are we blind too? And here's what he said. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Now, I use this verse to talk about children who don't know right from wrong and that they're not judged for that. They're not, the sin is not applied to them uh, because, hey, it, depending on the light that you have received and what you've been given. Let me give you another one here. Let's see if I've got it here. Um, yeah, well, we've got the six things God hates here. Um, so, there was a question asked of Jesus, which is the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And um, uh, this is the first and greatest commandment. So there it is. There are greater commandments and lesser commandments. And the second is like it. You shall love the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. That if we walk in love, we're going to do everything God's called us to do. Of course, that's the greatest thing for us. If we don't have love, it means nothing to us. So that's the greatest of the commandments. Then we've got six things that God hates. We want to make sure that we're not doing any of these things because there's six or seven things that God hates. This is a poetic term. Uh, There are six things that God hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look. So pride was the original sin. And pride is something that can quickly separate us from God and cause God to want to humble us. A lying tongue. 
someone that just can't tell the truth or tear someone down, hands that shed innocent blood. Now we look at the level that these sins are, a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to run to evil, a false witness that speaks lies, that's bearing false witness, and one who sows discord among brethren, someone who comes in just trying to divide people. These are seven things that God hates. Uh, now, a couple more thoughts. Um, Jesus said in, in Luke 12, 47 to 48, and the master who knew what his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, he shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone whom much is given, much will be required, and of whom much has been committed to him, they will also ask more. So here, the person who has more knowledge is punished worse than the person that has less knowledge. So it's not just the severity of the sin, it's whether or not we know it's sin, it's whether or not we, we have knowingly um, broken it. Um, I'll give you another one here. Um, if, if I kidnapped someone's, well, let's do it under the law. So if you went and stole your neighbor's sheep, then when you were caught, you had to restore that sheep, I think fourfold. Might have been more than that, but it's fourfold. So they didn't arrest you, they just demanded that you repay that guy his sheep and then give him four more sheep. Okay, so there's a penalty to stealing something. However, in Exodus 21:16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him or is found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. Now, this is the idea of slavery. If you kidnap someone and you and you sell him or he's found in your hand, to then you're will be put to death for that. So yes, kidnapping a person is worse than kidnapping a sheep, and we see that by the punishments that we get in the law. Then that there are various punishments that we find in the law depending on what they are. So there is a sense in which all sin can separate us from God and all sin is, the, sin is the same. But that's the only way. Other than that, we want to endeavor. We, the Bible says if anyone says they, they do not sin, they're a liar and the truth isn't in them. That's 1 John chapter 1. So we know we're going to sin but we want to stay away from sin as much as possible and the severity of sin. All right, so thank you very much uh, for joining me here today. I appreciate you guys. Um, we have a question, first of all, from Pokey. Pokey says, uh, hi, Robert. Um, the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. First uh, Kings 10, 14. All right, let me take a look at that. Let me pull up the pull up the Bible here and take a look at that just because I find this to be interesting. I wonder if we're going to make a, um, you, you say, um, you see, you see as I see in Revelation 13. Any connections? All right, so let's take a look at this. Uh, first of all, First uh, Kings 10, 14. Let me get it pulled up for you. Of course I do that. All right. 1 Kings 10, 14. Let me put this up on screen. The weight of the gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold, besides that from the traveling merchants and from the income of traders. Um, I think that there is no correlation. Uh, it's interesting, some of the earliest manuscripts 
have 616 in it. We just released a video on the Antichrist, I think called Seven Things About the Antichrist. One of the things that we pointed out there was in Bart Ehrman's book, Heaven and Hell, he talks about how the early Christians felt about Nero and that his name, Caesar Neron, adds up to 666 and Caesar Nero adds up to 616. Um, all um, both Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic had numbers that corresponded with the letters and so they added them together. And that some manuscripts say 616 and some say 666. And I believe that that's telling us that, that it is a revived Roman Empire and that the Antichrist will be an emperor that will persecute Christians because it was Nero who persecuted Christians early on um, in the church. Uh, he was the first emperor to do it. And he set Rome on fire, blamed it on the Christians, did horrible things to Christians, and he became known as the beast. So I think John connects the ultimate evil to the beast who's going to do wicked things uh, uh, to, the, to, to Christians and to Jews in their day. And so I think he connected the Roman Empire, the number Caesar Nero, so people would look at that, look back to Caesar Nero, and then get the idea that he was a Roman emperor leader. That's, um, that's my take on it. Could I be wrong? Most certainly I could be wrong. I mean, anytime that you begin to take a look at passages like this, there's no way, well, there's nothing in the identification of that person that we can know for 100% for sure but it's as good as anything that I've heard, all right? And um, comes from a scholar uh, that made the connections, even the scholar is anti-Christian. I, I still read it and go, I think there's a good connection there, all right? So we have a question from Fact Check These Hands. Fact Check These Hands says, have you heard of wheat and barley grape harvest symbolizing three different raptures? Luke, wheat, Mark, barley, Matthew, grapes. Could pre-, mid-, and post-tribulation raptures be correct? Could it be all three? Uh, I have never heard that. I do know the wheat barley's first and the, and the let's see, the wheat, then the barley, then the grapes. Yeah, so they're, uh, they're in that order. Um, in fact, check these hands. If you have put up a follow-up, um, let me know where you got that from. I would just be interested to know who has come up with it. And the answer is no. I have never heard of the uh, three different raptures. Um, that would be a new theory that you discovered if uh, there's a significant amount of people who believe that there are going to be three different raptures. Um, remember, the rapture is a smaller event of a larger event that is the resurrection. So the dead, in, there's a trumpet, and the dead in Christ rise first. And I believe that's Old Testament and New Testament because I believe all are dead in Christ. It's not just the church. Some see that phrase as the dead in Christ will rise first as just being the church and the saints are going to be resurrected later, but I don't think that's the case. I think Abraham was accounted righteousness, and in that first resurrection, all of them will meet the Lord in the air. They'll be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye. The corruptible will put on incorruptible, right? Um, or they'll, be, they'll be resurrected, and then those who are alive and remain will meet the Lord in the air. That's a much smaller group of people, and it's a much smaller event. The bigger event is the rapture. And um, I talked about that here a while back, and, some, and I said, I wish we had a new name for it. I mean, I like gathering better than, better than rapture. And um, in 2 Thessalonians, there's a reference to it as they're gathering. 
that he writes concerning the day of the Lord are gathering together to him. And I like the gathering. Um, rapture is a biblical word in the sense that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, that there's a reference to the catching away, and that in the Latin is raptura, and was and so we get our word rapture from it. Um, I don't necessarily like it. Part of it is the correlation of the weirdnesses that people have had about it, and you know the the infighting within the church about when it's going to happen. So I don't see three resurrections. That's the reason I would be hesitant to see three different raptures. Because, well, who's going to be who's going to be resurrected in the next one, right? And that's the reason that I believe that Matthew thirty-one is not the rapture, because there's not a resurrection with it. Now there will be a resurrection a little bit later when those who died during the the, the uh, millennium tribulation period will be resurrected. But it doesn't happen as I see it in. I don't think it happens. Let me just take a look here really quick. Um, I don't think that there is anything in Matthew 24 that would be, Matthew 24, 31, that would be connected to a rapture. But let me just go ahead and, and look into this really, really quick. Um, I think it starts at 29 and goes to 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the skies. The heavens and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And those who see will, will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. So that's similar to, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds. And so there's a question about this a couple weeks ago about whether or not there are people out in outer space, like maybe in the space stations, from one end of heaven to the other. I think that is um, an idiom, right? Like it's raining cats and dogs outside. Now you're trying to figure out, well, let's see. You know, if I was asked a question, if that was in the Bible, and I was asked a question, what does uh, such, such such say about raining cats and dogs? I would be like, let's see. I think maybe maybe they had I don't know upper stories and. Cats and dogs felt, you know, I'd be trying to figure it out. But really, it's an idiom. It means it's raining outside. And so gathering the saints from the four winds of the earth from one end of heaven to another is an idiom. An idiom makes a statement, and you're not paying attention to the specific words that are said, but it's making a statement that you and I know because we're in a we're in a language pack. And we know that raining cats and dogs doesn't literally mean raining cats and dogs. So I um I like it. I still would like to know. Um, oops, let's see where are we at. Okay, I would still like to know. Fact check these hands if you can tell me where you found that from. Just put the word follow up so I can see it, and um, I would like to take a look at that. All right. So Psych Man forty five. Good to see you. Psych Man says Corinthians eight three. If God has always known everything, He has always known everyone who ever loved Him. And those who forsook him, forknew him, he predestines, as Romans 8, 28 and 29 say, is that what these verses teach? Let me see what 1 Corinthians 8, 3 is. 1 Corinthians 8, 3. Let me go ahead and put them up on the screen for you, and we'll look if we read them. Let's just read 1 Corinthians 8, 3, then we'll look if we need more context. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Yeah, let's read the context a little bit. Um, let's see. Let's just go back to verse 1. Now, concerning things offered to idols, we know that all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks 
that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet he himself ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning eating of things offered to idols, we know that idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Though we are all things, through him we live. It's funny how Paul, he can, he can go on what seems like a rabbit trail and then bring it right back around to what it is. All right, so he starts off by talking in, in the first one concerning um, things offered to idols. He's going to go on and address this in this chapter. And he says, first of all, um, we know we all have knowledge. So we know that we can all try to figure this out from a knowledge point of view. Is eating idols wrong or right? Um, this has been sacrificed to an idol. So now can I take it? Should I eat it? But then it says, but knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So love trumps knowledge. So we really want to walk in love rather than just knowledge. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing. So when, you, when you're thinking, I, I know I, I've got all the knowledge I need to have, then you know nothing. Yet as you ought to know, so you still got a lot to learn. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So he's comparing knowledge to love in this passage. And he's talking about the importance of love over knowledge. And when we're talking about eating meat, we want to connect the love. And he says, if anyone lo um, loves God, then he is known by God. And so I should love God, be known by God, and then get my direction from there. Therefore, concerning the, th um, the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in this world. So it's just an idol. There might be demonic powers behind idols, but the idol itself is nothing, and that there is no other God but one. So there's not any other God behind these foods. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him. Um, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone this knowledge. So he's saying some people have the knowledge, other people don't. In other words, he's saying we're free to eat it because there's no other gods and we can eat it. But not everybody has this knowledge. Some people get stuck on things and that's where love has to come in. For some, with, uh, with consciousness or with conscience of, conscience of the idol until now, eat all things offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Meaning that they eat it and they're defiled because they don't understand that, that there is one God. Uh, but food does not commend us to God, or neither does eat what we eat. Um, are we the better? Which why tell you that'll tell you also we're not supposed to eat co or that kosher food doesn't help us one way or another. Nor if we do not eat, are we the worse? But beware lest someone uh, somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Okay, so I think that's far enough. So he's comparing uh, segment. He's comparing knowledge with love, and that when we love God, we are known by God, and how much better is being known by God than saying, I have knowledge, being puffed up in our knowledge, right? Because knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So um, your question, if God has always known everything, then he has always known everyone who has ever loved him. Yeah, I think, I think this is saying something different than that. I think it's saying that my motivation is love, and rather than trying to get as much knowledge as I can, I should love God, and then I'm known by God. So he's using the contrast of what I know 
to loving God and then being known by God and how much more important is it to be known by God? Now your question, yeah, I mean, your, your statement here, does God know everyone who, who's ever loved him or will ever love him? And the answer to that is yes. That is the foreknowledge of God. There are people who do not believe that God has foreknowledge, that God is taken by surprise by things. Uh, and I, I don't believe that at all. I, I was eating with uh, a pastor here in town years ago now, and um, his assistant pastor was there, and I knew his assistant pastor, and he told me about this belief, and I thought I was dumbfounded by it. I was like, so God, God doesn't know whether I'm going to pick up this glass. I'm going to fake God out. Oh, God, you thought I was not going to pick it up, but I did. And uh, he looked at me, stone face. I believe this. And I'm like, okay. And I looked at the pastor. I looked back at his assistant. I went, okay. Uh, it just is something that when we look through scripture, we see uh, that God, God knows the future. God can tell the future from the beginning because he knows it. And um, when we love him, we're known by God. And the, the point being, greater is that the knowledge, but we are still known by God when we love him. All right. So thank you, um, Psych Man, for your question. If you have a follow-up on that, if I missed it somehow, let me know. All right. Um, <clears throat> uh, Jari has a question. Speaking of healing, is it possible the reason why some people aren't healed is because we haven't prayed enough for people to be healed? That's why miracles haven't happened as much as then. Um, I don't think so, Jari. I think that God gives, God gives the gifts. The, the Bible says that the Spirit gives the gifts as He wills. I'm going to put your question down here. I can still see it. But the Spirit gives the gifts as He wills. And miracles or healings are God's to give. Even the gifts of healings, you'll notice, Jari, are in the plural. So no one has the gift of healing that they can just go out and lay hands at anybody and pray for them. But they're given a gift of healing for each individual person there they are to heal. So they are given gifts of healings. If anybody is given, the, who had a gift, if there was a gift of healing, not gifts of healings, but a gift of healing, then that person ought to go to the hospitals and empty them out. That person ought not to go hold crusades and raise money, as much money as they can, to be able to try to get as many people to come to their crusades. They should go where the sick people are. They're gonna be far more effective. But God, in his wisdom, chooses to give the gifts where he wants to give them. Um, your question, could it be we haven't prayed enough, or let's say haven't prayed enough for people? Um, so the Bible says you don't have because you don't ask. And you don't receive when you ask because you ask amiss wanting to spend it on your own pleasure. So that's James. So yeah, we want to pray for everyone who is sick and we want to pray for them sincerely that they would be healed. And if you are sick and you haven't had somebody lay hands and pray for you, then I would suggest you to do that. Lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Um, I believe that God does miracles today in his choosing with who he wants to do it with <clears throat> in order to keep kind of a background healing going on all the time so we will know that God does miracles that's why we have Craig Keener's book, Miracles Today, um, A Case for Miracles by, by Lee Strobel. But miracles were done, Jari, in, um, in groups around Moses, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus, and the apostles. And then there's false miracles in the end of the age. 
So God attested to the law by Moses having miracles. He attested to the prophets and the writing of the prophets by Elijah and Elijah. He attested to Jesus being the Messiah by miracles, which were foretold in the Bible. And then that the New Testament, which would be written by apostles, was attested to by miracles as well. So there were miracles that were clustered around each one of these groups as God gave us his revealed word, which we have today. But God does do miracles and does them, doesn't do it for everyone because then we would get, you know, well, we'd get a formula down and a miracle wouldn't mean much if they were done all the time. So if, if miracles were done like they were in the book, um, in the early, early church, early church, Philip did miracles, Stephen did miracles, uh, Peter did miracles, the apostles did miracles. If they were done as much today, then they wouldn't mean much. People would kind of figure it out and they wouldn't mean much. They have to be rare in, in, um, by the fact that they're a miracle that would really be a sign because miracles are a sign that point to something, okay? Um, and I think when we start putting conditions on it, I haven't prayed enough, I haven't fasted enough, um, so you need to pray more, you need to fast more, then we end up being the ones who are trying to make it happen. That doesn't mean we don't ask. Um, Paul prayed three times that the thorn in his flesh should be removed, and then God said, my grace is sufficient for you. So we do ask, but when we ask, we don't ever think it's us doing it. We think it's God doing it and <clears throat> getting more people. Never does the Bible get the idea, the more people you get praying for you, you know, one of them is going to hit, you know, ne don't, we don't get any ideas like that, or, or a more important person to pray for you. Nothing like that. It's just we pray and we ask God and God m decides in his wisdom to either heal someone or to have them learn and to, to be an example that people can see Christ through a sickness. That's God's desire and God's plan. All right, Jari, again, if you have any follow-up on that, um, you can do that. Um, do I need to read my question since it's above? Did I, um, did I miss another question from you? Fact check these hands. All you need to do is put question in front of something and then re-ask it. Um, um, let's see. Um, I think I did. I, I looked at your question. You're talking about the three different raptures. So I did cover that earlier. If you've got another one, um, <clears throat> fact check these hands. Just write the word question in front of it and, um, and then write it out. All right. And uh, we will, we'll make it down here. And even if I don't get to it this week, I will get to it next week. All right. Um, so AP has a question. Are we condemned to generational sin now? My answer to this, I'm going to give you a short answer. I'm going to give you a longer answer. My, the short answer is no, we are, we are not um, con um, condemned to gen uh, generational curses. Okay. Um, there may be, because we are similar to our parents, there may be something genetically that would make me more prone to addiction, for example. If your parents are alcoholics, you might be more prone to, to be an alcoholic. doesn't mean you're going to, but that you might be more prone to it. God said, I will not, I will, the, the children of Israel had a saying, our parents ate grapes and our teeth were set on edge. Now, what they meant by that is we didn't do it, our parents did it. And God said, stop saying that. I'm not going to judge the, the kids for the parents' sin. 
and I'm not going to judge the parents for the sin of the children. Now, there's a passage in the Old Testament, I'm not exactly sure where it's at, where God says, I will pass down the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. Now, what exactly is meant by that? I need to go back and, and look at the passages a little bit closer, but I believe that what it's saying is, look, how I live in my life is going to affect the people after me. And if I have a massive, if I'm massively sinful, think of the king, think of a king. So a king could live for God and then his children would live for God and they would be blessed because of it. Until a king came along who decided that he didn't want to live for God, he wanted to do his own thing and then he would be removed from being king. And now generations consecutive to him would be affected by that. So how we live today affects the generations that come after us. And I think that's what that was saying there. But we are, even if there was a, genu um, a generational curse, let's just say there, even in the Old Testament law, God did curse people because of our sin. I sinned and God cursed my kids because of it, which I don't think there was, but let's just say there was. We are no longer under curse. It says clearly. So we're not under a curse, we're under Christ. How could you have Christ in you and be under some curse? We've been set free from all of those kind of things, all right? And um, I, may, I may just make a note here really quick and um, because I would like to spend a little bit more time on generational curses. We have it for a while and we um, ended up doing that. So let me just make a note here. Generational curses. And I, and I may just go ahead and do that as a first question um, in one of our up and coming Q&As where I can take a look at the passages and be able to talk about them because I'm trying to remember them all. You know, when you're, you're answering questions on the fly, you're trying to remember all the details about it. And I wish that my, I wish I had total recall, but I don't. Um, so Hunter, Pastor, when can you come to Sierra Vista? I'm not sure, Hunter. Um, um, I was scheduled. To, to go and to speak for Pastor Pat, who's a really good friend of mine. Um, Sierra Vista is a city, for those of you who don't know who it's about, well, it's exactly an hour and 15 minutes from my house to Calvary Chapel, Sierra Vista. And I know that because I drive it. And um, they have Thursday night services and periodically I'll go up and be able to speak for Pastor Pat. I get that privilege and um, haven't been there in a few months, maybe a half, maybe, maybe closer to a year, not sure. Um, but, um, yeah, we're, it's in the works. We're talking about it and, uh, figuring out when we would be able to do it, but I do want to get there, Hunter. All right. And it's good to see you on here. Okay. So, ah, uh, let's see. We have a question. Um, yeah, Cheryl says, are there, are there different levels of hell for those who are really bad? I don't see anywhere in the Bible where there's different levels of hell. And this I can speak much more confidently on because I have just spent the last few months reading books, studying, looking into, reading every passage in the Bible that talks about the, the wicked, the ungodly, not only in what we would call hell, but the fate of the ungodly. And what I do find I do not find any different levels of hell or any different levels of heaven. Okay, there's heaven and there's hell. However, there are rewards in heaven 
And those rewards don't come to one person on one level of heaven and another level of heaven. And there are those who are going to be punished less. Jesus talked about those who are beaten with a few stripes and those who are beaten with many stripes. Those who are beaten with few are those who didn't know but did something deserving, deserving to be punished. And then there were those who did know and they, they received many stripes because of it. Also, in the days of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, who were really bad, than for Capernaum because of the light that they had received. So, God's judgment doesn't always go the way we think it should go. How much light we have and how much we receive helps out with that judgment. So, not everybody's going to be treated the same in heaven or in hell. And there, there is different um, levels of punishment, not different levels of hell. But I don't know that, that they're preset to each person. God judges that person by what they've done, by their works, it says, by their deeds, they will be judged. And um, so then there's a righteous correlation to that, those deeds. And I believe that God will be fair because in the end we hear, you are just and true and fair. Now, how bad is this punishment? This is where, where we find that we as, as humans might not know. For one thing, we're very used to sin. And so, we might not realize how bad sin is. And sin may be deserving of a higher punishment than we think, right? And we also know the Bible tells us that certain sins that we don't think are that bad are bad, like rebellion is worse than the sin of witchcraft, the Bible tells us. Also, we, there's no way for us to know how holy and pure and true God is. And one day, Jesus will end up judging us and our offenses against God. And how bad is that? If my offense, if I offend um, a dog, there's one punishment. If I offend the, um, hmm, just trying to think of a person that would be unreachable, somebody could make a mistake of what I'm saying. Um, if I offend um, an ambassador of the United States, that's going to be another punishment. So you could say there's levels of punishment. But the offense is against the ultimate, which is against God. And so that's one of the reasons that I think when we talk about punishment, why we might not seem, it might not seem to us to be fair. Um, and even though there are, are, that God's going to be completely fair and some are going to be beaten with few and some are going to be beaten with many, doesn't mean it's a place that you don't want to go because that's where, where people will go. We well, don't want to go there. No, it, you are resurrected. You are judged and then you are punished and that you don't want to go there, okay? And um, we, can, we can talk more about that if you have any more questions about that. But there are not, I, there's nothing in the Bible about different levels of hell. So, um, a little question from Jari here. I don't know if it's the same one or not. If so, if someone punches someone in the face and doesn't repent, their entire life and goes to hell. Will that punch be feeling like that? Are always punched Hitler? He will always feel like uh, he lost. Um, yeah, no, I don't. I don't think that the. I don't think it's like that. 
You know, I don't think that we're going through life feeling. I'm going through into punishment. I think the punishment is different than that. I think it's like today someone um, breaks into a house and then goes to jail for a year. His punishment wasn't that. That's a fair job punishment because he broke into a house, a place that someone was expecting to be secure and safe. And so the punishment has been set as a year as a sense of judgment towards breaking into houses. And so he, he wasn't that he had his house broken into. That would be the fair judgment. We see that there are fair judgments that are not identical to the judgments that are there. So those ideas of hell and Dante's Inferno and um, Milton's Paradise Lost um, go into creative ways in which people have thought about hell, how hell will be, um, how hell will be carried out and how the punishment of hell will be carried out. And again, we're just not biblically told. So we can come up with our ideas, but there's a lot that we don't know and we just have to settle in to what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know and we just have to end up settling into that. All right, so uh, we have a question from Melissa. Melissa says, question, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Is it using his name in vain? If not, can you um, give examples? Mark 3.29 says it is the unforgivable sin. Yeah, let's go ahead and just go to Mark 3.29 and let's talk about this. In fact, it would be, be best just to kind of read and talk through it. So Mark 3.29. Let me go ahead and get this up on the screen for you. I'm probably going to back up a little bit here, um, Melissa, in order to really get context. Uh, let's see. Let's see how far back I got to go here. All right, then a pardonable sin. Assuredly, I say to you, all sin will be forgiven. The son of, um, will be forgiven. Let me, sorry. Um, assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. The son of man. And whatever blasphemies they may utter. Let me look at this all. Okay, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. So, Son of Man in general here, right? Assuredly, I say to you that all sins will be forgiven the Son of Man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But with who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will um, has never has forgiveness, but is subject to an eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Um... Okay, now let me see where where else this is at because there, there is another. Let's see. Let's go to Matthew. Um, let's go to Matthew twelve thirty one. Uh, there's other another the other um, these are the synoptic gospels, and they give a little bit different information. And there's a little clarity I think in Matthew. So I'm and um, in Matthew twelve thirty one. Therefore I say to you. Every sin of blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven him. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man. So here's a little bit of clarity. So when you're speaking a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit. Now, they had said, um, it had said before that they had, this was said to them because they had said that he had an unclean spirit. I think there are a couple of things happening here. First of all, you have the scribes and Pharisees who should know he's the Messiah. They have enough background, enough scriptures in the word of God that they know he's the Messiah. 
Number two, they've rejected him, rejected him, rejected him. They've rejected him when he's done miracles. They've rejected him um, when he's cast out demons. They've rejected him. And finally, the rejection comes to where they reject him by saying he has an unclean spirit. And this rejection is a sign of them continuing to reject the Holy Spirit and the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's not saying that the Holy Spirit was an unclean spirit, but it was a point where they had rejected, rejected, rejected. And now they cannot be forgiven. The enemy would love for you to think that there was a thing you could say that God would go, now you said that, you cannot be forgiven. It's a continual rejection and they continued and to reject it. And so finally he went back in secret and he would not, he didn't teach them openly anymore. He spoke to them in parables because of that. So the blasphemy of the spirit is the continual rejection of the Holy Spirit and gaining a lot of information. I think we get this in the book of Hebrews too. Those who have tasted the heavenly gifts and it gives a list of the spiritual things they're involved in and then they they um, they fall away. It's impossible to renew them to repentance. They don't even want to come to repentance. It's impossible to renew them. You have to have a lot of information for this to happen, and then you have to reject and reject and reject. Now, if that's the case, that means there's a line out there somewhere that I could cross if I'm rejecting God, where I've gone too far, and now I can't believe. And we don't know what that line is. Never are we told what those words are, what that line would be, because if there was, there would be people that th thought they committed it or that committed on purpose, um, and there's just not anything out there that's like that. Okay, Melissa? So, um, hopefully that answers your question. If you have any other question, if you have another question about it, then you can go ahead and um, just put follow through, follow up in front of it, all right? So, we have a question from John Doe. John Doe says, um, when do you suggest new believers to start studying the Bible? It feels overwhelming. I listen to the Q&As and old services to try to catch up on my lost years. Thank you, John. Um, I think you should start reading the Bible right away. And I think that you should start reading it in the book of John, chapter 1, and just read a, a, a bit of it. You can read the first chapter if you want to, if you feel good about that. Um, or you can read until you feel like God really speaks to you through it. But what you're doing is you're learning how to read his word. And when we read the Bible, we read it as an, a historical document, okay? That's giving us information and that God is going to speak through, bring truth through. So we believe the truth that is revealed in the word of God is inerrant. But, but it is historical documents. So we've got manuscripts of the book of John. In fact, the oldest manuscript, which could date all the way back to the first century, is from the book of John. So you're reading the account that happened there. So you're reading it knowing it's truth, but you're reading the account. So read what happens there. Don't try to add anything to it. This is a mistake a lot of people make, and this is for those who are young or those who are older as well. Uh, Cross-references, you're going to learn later on. You're going to learn scriptures that are going to connect to yourself. But right now, begin reading in the book of John. Take time. Don't be afraid to grow slowly. Slow growth is permanent growth. We're in a marathon, not a sprint. And so you're just starting to read and learn and grow. Have a love for God's word. Have a love for God. Have a heart to do the things that you're reading and finding in the pages of scripture. And I think it's good to be listening 
um, to Q and A's and to old, you know, old messages. I think that's going to give you um, a lot of information. But I would say start reading in the Book of John. Read it as a historical account. That's true, and then read what's there and let it really speak to you. Okay, like I said, take it slow. Um, instead of I used to read two chapters at a time daily because I thought somehow that was spiritual. And I, I slowed down and started doing a lot less than that. Just just taking in God's word and letting it speak to me. All right. So um, I appreciate that, John Doe. We have a question from Barbara. Barbara says, um, I'm reading the case for Christ and the word uh, transdescinums was used and I never heard the word. Uh, search definition. Ba um, baby souls are generated by parents Creationism soul is divine creation thoughts. Huh. Yeah, I've never heard I've never heard the word either. At least I've never noticed the word. Um but let me just do this. Let's see. Tradusianism. Tradusianism. T-R-A-D-U-C-I-A. I would love to know the sentence it was used in. And okay, there we go. Okay, let me just—I'm just, just going to pull up Wikipedia here. Wikipedia is not always the best source, but it's the best place to get a start on something when you're not familiar with it. Okay, so I'm not sure how to pronounce this. Um, is Christian theology, in Christian theology, so this is a theological term, is the doctrine about the origin of the soul holding to the immaterial aspect which is transmitted through the natural generation along the body and material aspect of human beings. This is human propagation is of the whole being, both material and immaterial aspects. Okay, so this is way over what I can get into here um, at in, in, in this Q&A, all right? But uh, I do appreciate it, and uh, I want to look into it, okay? So anything theologically, um, so I would love to be able to figure out exactly what's being said here. So it looks like how the soul is passed on is, is being dealt here. Usually in theology, we come back to passages that speak to something. So that's what I would like to do, is get back to those passages and, um, and take a look at them, okay? So thank you, Barbara, for your question. That's interesting. Um, if you can, maybe, what do we got here, about 13 minutes? Or where are we at? So, Barbara, if you could put the um, page number in that that's on, I would love to read it in context. All right? So I appreciate that, if you can do that. And if not, I might be able to find it anyway. All right? So um, we have a question from Jim. Uh, Jim says, Revelation 19, uh, in Revelation 19, verse 19, it says that the armies of the earth will make war with him who sits on the horse. Do you think it sounds like they knew he was coming? Um, it sounds. So, um, <clears throat> I think he probably ran out of space there. So, in Revelation 19, yeah, if, if I'm remembering correct, there's two different armies. There's the armies from the east that the Euphrates River has dried up to let them come over. 
and there, um, there's the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet that have gone out and summons people to come and fight for them. And they are fighting against each other. And this is probably going to be the ultimate destruction. And Jesus comes back in the middle of it. And then they turn to fight him. So, did they know he was coming? Maybe there was some sense in which they knew. But no, they're battling together to fight against each other. The forces of the Antichrist from the forces of the East, the 200 million man army that comes over from the East. And then they turn and they fight against him and he kills them with the sword that comes out of his mouth and those armies are killed and then he returns. That's the sign of the Son of Man that is in the heavens and he actually returns at the end of the tribulation period and that is his return uh, to earth. Okay, so um, I don't see anything there that let us know that they were on their way or that they knew that they were going to come. All right, so I appreciate that. Um, so fact check this hand says, yeah, follow up. Okay, good. Uh, let's see. Get that over here. Fact check this hand says, um, follow up, Pastor Robert. Channel is, we are overcomers. Pastor is Wayne Fowler, Keith is working on posting his link here. People connected to the videos with the name and other studies this. Okay, so I, yeah, I don't know who Keith, I don't know who, I don't know who Wayne Fowler is. I don't know who we are overcomers. Um, so yeah, well, I'll, I'll take a look at him. Thank you very much for posting that. I'll take a look at it a little bit more and we can talk about it a little bit later on. All right, uh, so let's see. Um, can you close to the end here? If you have a question, then you can write out the word question, write out your question, reread it a couple times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit your question. Um, we have a question from Jeffrey. Yeah, so Jeffrey says, question, Jeremiah 15, 9, is it possible to be surprised by evil? Is it possible God can be surprised by evil, by the evil that men, that man does? So, Jeremiah... Let me, let me get to my Bible here. I have things worked out here. So by um, Jeremiah. Let me look here. Jeremiah 19.5. Yeah, so you know, I know a verse this is. This is God saying it didn't even enter into my heart. Right? Jeremiah 19.5. I just dawned on me what, what, what passage it is. All right. Yeah, this is it. So, um, God says, They have also built the high places to Baal and burnt their sons with fire um, for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command to speak, nor did I, nor did it come to my mind. So, God's saying, I mean, this horrible sin of sacrificing your children uh, to, to, to Baal, okay, to Baal Molech. You actually cause your children to pass through fire. And this is speaking of, in fact, let me just go ahead. I'm going to come out of this for a minute. I'm going to go back to the beginning. This is speaking of about the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, we're going to be talking tonight. We'll be reading a portion of this uh, section today. And um, it was the kings of Israel copied the Canaanites and there have been Canaanite sites that are found that have the stones and the sacrifice stones, jars of burnt babies around them, more than one, 
it was, and bones scattered. In the Valley of Hinnom, they haven't found any bones, but we do know that there was a, a tophet there, which is the actual altar by which it was built to, and that they, the king sacrificed their children there. And it wasn't widespread, otherwise we would have evidence archaeologically of a widespread burning in the Valley of Hinnom. But God curses the valley in, in, Gen, um, in Jeremiah 19 because of that. And I'm just going to back up here a little bit. And then I'll answer your question. Um, <clears throat> I'm not, I haven't forgot about it. And go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom. So he's given a command in Jeremiah, by which, um, which, is, um, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate. And proclaim there the words that I tell you. And say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, our God. Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place. That's Gehenna the valley of Gehenna, which is translated hell in the New Testament. And whoever hears his ears will tingle because they have forsaken and made this an alien place because they have burned incense in its other gods of whom their fathers nor, nor the kings of Judah nor, and uh, known and have filled this place with the blood of innocence. Note there that God calls the babies that were sacrificed the innocents. We talk about children and whether or not they go to heaven. God sees them as the innocents. They have also built high places to Baal to burn their sons with a fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command to speak, nor did it come to my mind. God would not even have thought to tell him to do such a thing. Therefore, behold, the day is coming, says the Lord, that I will place, that, that this place shall be no more called Tophet. Tophet is the actual altar by which you sacrifice the kids to. So there's the valley of Gehenna, then there was Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom. So it's not going to be called Tophet anymore, where they sacrifice children. It's not going to be called the valley of Hinnom, but it shall be the valley of slaughter. All right, and there's a lot we could talk about in that section. It's a section that I think a lot of people really ought to know. God's cursing this valley. The valley of Gehenna is being cursed. And then by the time we get to the days of Jesus, people see it as a place of the, as of the dead, where the dead are, are, are be, where the um, ungodly dead are going to. And Jesus speaks of those things as well. So is it possible to be, um, for God to be surprised by us? I don't think so. I think God knows exactly what we're going to do. He knows the future. He knows what we're going to do. But that doesn't mean that our evil isn't so much that God would be, that God would give us a, what's the right word here? Um, it's our evil is so great that God's like, I it never even entered my mind to do it and you did this evil. Now we know that God knew it would happen, but God would never have given a command to sacrifice their children by passing through fire. You say, well, he did to Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his son. But in the very beginning, it was a test. God, it says, and God tested Abraham. So it was never a serious command from God. It never would have entered into his mind to tell people to sacrifice children um, to, to God, and, and they did it. So I don't think it's possible to, to surprise God but I think it's possible for us to do things that God would have never even have thought to give, you know, that that thing wouldn't even have entered into his mind. That, but the evil of men's heart is so bad. Um, could it be a, um, what's the word for it? Something that is so, he's making a statement to talk about how bad that evil is. And so it's kind of like, um, 
yeah, I can't remember the word. There's a word for it when you make a statement and the statement itself is saying that something is much worse. And um, so God could be doing that there, okay? But um, great question and um, a really important passage. The Valley of Gehenna was cursed and God said it would become a place of slaughter. All right, we'll be talking about that later on in our study tonight, okay? We have another question from Pokey. Pokey says, blaspheme against the spirit where it says age to come. Is that during the reign of Christ or mortals who made it through the great tribulation? Ah, ages to come. So I'm trying to think of how the phrase ages to come was used, Pokey. Um, and I don't know. Um, not, for, not be forgiven him now or the ages to come. Is that how it reads? will not be forgiven now or the ages to come. Yeah, there will never be a forgiveness available for it. If I'm remembering right, that would be it. It would never be a forgiveness for them, not now or in the ages to come. So the inability to have that sin forgiven is permanent, is really what it is saying. That's what I think, okay? So Fishers of Men says, uh, question, as a Christian, are you saved even though you struggle with sin as an addiction. If I try my hardest by keeping on, better keep on failing, I just don't feel like I'm saved anymore um, or and forgotten. All right, Fishers of Men, thank you for your question. Um, this will be the last question that we have today. Behavioral issues and addictions can be very difficult. The Bible talks about strongholds and taking every thought captive. There's also a demonic realm that Satan is a tempter and he is tempting you, okay? The real question is, have you genuinely repented? Meaning, have you said to God, I'm sorry for my sin, help me not to do it anymore, I really don't want to do this, help me with it. And if you genuinely repent and have the right heart, then what's going to happen is, is God's going to move you towards righteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, you may be tempted again and you may sin in that behavioral issue or in that addiction, but then do you really genuinely repent? If there isn't genuine repentance, so someone could repent fall back into the addiction, do that for six months, and then have a genuine repentance that causes them to change. Someone can have an addiction that they fall back into weekly, and they are continually asking for that to be able to be changed. Okay? The real question is, is there genuine repentance when you're asking to have your sins forgiven? It, it's not connected to whether or not you do it again. It's connected to the genuine repentance of your heart. And genuine repentance will help you that you won't do it again, along with some other things. Like, okay, so you have a genuine repentance, you really turn from it. That you endeavor to walk in the Spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. You delight in the Lord so that God can give you the desires of your heart and change the desires within you. You are looking for the way of escape in the midst of temptation. So it is true repentance that gets serious about wanting to get rid of it. So if you are watching things on a computer sexually that you're not supposed to watch and you're convicted by it, 
and you want to stop, but you find yourself drawn back to it again in a week or two. And then you repent and you really ask God and you really do want to change. Then there can be a genuine forgiveness. How many times will you go through that before God won't forgive you? Well, it depends if there's real genuine repentance. But if there's really genuine repentance, there will be a fruit that will follow after a while. Okay? So, I think I would never say that someone is beyond being forgiven because of an addiction or a behavioral issue. But I think genuine salvation and genuine repentance is going to lead you away from that addiction and away from that be the behavioral issues that you have. All right? So thank you very much, Fishers of Men. If you want to come back and ask a follow-up question to that next week, uh, you can. I appreciate that. I appreciate you guys uh, here today. Um, we will, Lord willing, have a, a Q&A uh, this weekend. Um, tonight we have a teaching. We're talking about the fate of the ungodly, and we're going to do a biblical survey of what the Bible has to say about hell. And I'm going to talk about why I think there's so much confusion on the issue of hell, and we'll be covering that tonight. So that's at 6 o'clock for the service. It'll be online at 6. Um, if you're here in Tucson, you can go to the 715 at the West Campus or the 6 o'clock at the East Campus. We have two campuses. You'll be able to go uh, to each one, and um, we've been looking at that. Um, we've been looking at it. We looked at hell last week. We've got um, a teaching getting hell right, and I only got halfway through my notes. So we'll be covering that biblical survey today, looking at all the different words in the Bible for hell and why there's so much confusion about exactly what hell means. All right? So I appreciate you guys. Love you. Stay close to Jesus. Again, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Barbara, thank you for um, giving me the case for faith. Um, page 187. I appreciate that around paragraph 4. I want to look that up. All right? And um, I, I do appreciate you guys. Um, and I will see you. I'm out. I got to go because I got to make it to the service. Um, but stay close to Jesus. Walk in the Spirit. Don't fulfill, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Delight in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. If you delight in the world, you'll have the desires of the world. If you're sowing to your flesh, from your flesh, you're going to reap corruption. So you want to begin to sow to the Spirit so that from the Spirit, you can reap life. Okay? And uh, look for the way of escape in the midst of temptation. Okay? No temptation has overtaken That's not common to man, but God will give you a way of escape. All right? Love you guys. I'm out. We'll see you later on.